Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Heartbeat of the Dance Floor. Today I have with me a very, very special man, not only in the music business, but also on a personal note. I've known Ray since my first days as a professional in the biz, as they say. In January of 1977, I was a publicist for the Howard Bloom organization, and we shared the same office building as TK Records at 65 East 55th Street in New York City. And as if that wasn't enough, Howard Bloom also shared his office suite with Ray's twin brother, Bob, who was a booking agent. Ray ran the TK Records New York City office as their company was headquartered in Miami, Florida, coincidentally, where I had just moved from to begin my career in New York City. Prior to TK Records, Ray began his dance music career doing independent promotions for Dr. Brizard's original Savannah band and for Vicki Sue Robinson. Over the years, Ray added some other freelance promotions for other record labels like Polydor, Sire, and RCA Records to his already impressive resume of heading promotion, marketing, and A&R departments at various record labels. This ultimately led to Ray's founding of his own record label, RFC Records, a division of Warner Brothers. These days, Raymond has revived his label as RFC Fresh Records and has new releases with artists like Petawain, Sons of Funk, and Taiwan. It is my absolute pleasure to have as my guest today, Ray Caviano. Welcome to the heartbeat of the dance floor, Ray. Well, hello, Marsha. Good to be with you today. Thank you. <laughs> well, here we are. In post 40 years ago, we were still, we were dancing then, and are we still dancing? We indeed are. Haven't stopped dancing yet, my friend. <laughs> that, actually, that was a good song, uh, Haven't Stopped Dancing, Gonzalez. There you go. Yes, you, indeed. Yeah. Wonderful remix by John Luongo, actually. <laughs> that, that was a good segue, right, Marsha? It was. It was perfect. You know. Oh, right? my God. There's my picture. There I am. Oh there my you are. Oh, I began my career with you, and I swear you were one of the first six people that I met. Um, and I, I must say that I learned what it was to be a professional, both from Howard Bloom and from you. And from the bottom of my heart, I thank you for yeah. giving me that example as a malleable, wide-eyed, young, know-nothing no from Florida. <laughs> yeah, that was an interesting uh, office I was working in. One of the things that I also did that I wound up in that office working with Sire and helping with them with the acts, there was a guy named Miles Copeland who managed a lot of British acts. They were on Sire and what have you. So I shared an office with British talent managers, Miles Copeland, with an attorney, you know this name, Alan Groobman. And, yes. Uh, and that was Alan's office at 65 what was that, 65 East 55th? 65 East 55th. And actually, I had a link into Allen through a family friend in Florida before I even moved to New York. And then I guess a year after Howard Bloom, I ended up working for Jacques and Henri at Can't Stop Productions, also right. in the same building, but on the fourth floor. Right. And that was a good office to work in because being with Allen, who was a young attorney now, right now he's one of the biggest entertainment music lawyers in the business. Uh, he was just starting, and he introduced me to people like Tommy Matola, and I worked at Savannah Van and uh, Vicky Sue Robinson's manager Ted Harless, and what have you. Uh, and having worked with Miles Copeland with his acts, all of a sudden, Alan introduced me, if you will, to Henry Stone, the famous uh, Henry Stone. And uh, I don't know if people know who Henry Stone is. You may want to educate the audience. Yes, I, I am going to interject that Henry Stone was the founder and president of TK Records, which was the only 
record company in South Florida in the early 70s and had mega hits with George McRae, with Betty Wright, and with uh, Casey and the Sunshine Band, which right. really kind of put them on the map. Yeah, George McRae sold 80 million singles with Rock Your Baby. It was a, a hit in over uh, 75 countries around the world. And, of course, Casey was huge, etc. And uh, George one was a nice guy, too. Yeah, so uh, Alan Grubman, the attorney, created an entree to me to Henry. And at this point, I knew that things were starting to bubble in New York City back then in various clubs. There was a guy, I don't know if you know his name, but he was one of the younger uh, disco dance promotion guys. He was working for 20th Century Records with the Ritchie family, Brazil, and Betty Wright. His name was Billy Smith. Yes, of and, course. And Billy was one of the-, the infamous <laughs> Billy Smith. Was this before his, uh, his London days? Uh, yes, exactly. And and truth be told, he kind of introduced me to, you know, taking, we would go around uh, to the various clubs, uh, you know, Barefoot Boy, Tony Smith, God rest his soul, mm. and various, uh, you know, 12 West and Flamingo. And, and uh, there was a, uh, you know, David Mancuso's Loft and Nikki Ciano's Gallery. And Billy and I would go around literally six or seven days of the week going to clubs. And not for anything, he really introduced me to the, you know, the, the, the terrain of the club scene in New York, which was starting the bubble. And, you know, quite frankly, uh, with all due respect to Billy, uh, he helped me really jump into this field. Uh, and where else would be better but in New York City, where the dance disco scene was exploding? I mean, we had records like Rock the Boat by the Use Corporation sold 60,000 copies with no radio play. Yeah, you know? it was it was crazy. Um, I mean, I remember uh, being at the cusp of that dilemma of, oh my God, we have record sales and it has nothing to do with radio. How do we chart it? How do we figure it out? And right. that was kind of my entree to disco um, through, as I say, Richie Family, African Queens, which was a, a TK product. It was, and it was TK a Marlin. great, great. It on the Marlin label, wonderful record. Right. And, and there was this dilemma of how are we accounting for all of these mega sales that were at the time, I think the record, uh, they were very surprised all of a sudden disco was a multi-million, if not billion dollar business. And where did it come from? And nobody could chart it on the radio. There was no disco radio station back then there was bls which was predominantly r&b frankie crocker a huge right right opponent. but yeah i mean this was the beginning but then we we had disco radio come along with the wktu yes. and all, all these stations and they but wasn't the, that in the 80s uh it was you no know, it was like at the you know the end of 1980 around that period uh, you know yeah. the chain because that's when change came out on the rfc label and that was 1980 itself it, and what okay. have you. Uh, okay. And Frankie Crocker, though, was the architect of urban contemporary radio in New York. And, Agreed. And, and he br helped bridge the gap of, of both the black uh, audience and the Caucasian audience when he started playing artists like Donna Summer. Once he did that, Gloria Gaynor, BT Express, Soul Makusa, Use Corporation, the list is endless. He just kept breaking hit after hit after hit. Speaking and, uh, of, I'm throwing up a picture. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about this because it has pretty much all the characters, including uh, Frankie and so many others. Boy, Betty Wright. Yeah, Betty Wright, who, God bless her soul. There's Judy, there's Judy Weinstein, who the, was the architect of For the Record Record Pool, uh, which was one of the 
mainstay record pools in New York City. And there's uh, Ashford and Simpson and Frankie. Uh, Frankie has since passed away, and Nick has passed and away. Nick has passed away. I remember, you know, I, I, Frankie was a regular at the VIP room in Larry's garage. Uh, that's boy, that's an understatement. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, do, do, are we going to go, go that far into the journey of the Paradise Garage? Because that's going down the road a little bit. Well, well, you know, Ray, the focus of what I'm trying to bring out in this series has to do with what may be considered a somewhat abstract theory. What is the heartbeat? The heartbeat of the dance floor. I think it goes beyond a dance floor as most people define it. And if the heartbeat, for example, comes from the music, that music would not exist. That heartbeat would not exist if it was not for the artist. Right. Uh, whether it was the songwriter, the musician, or the singer's producers, that it would not exist in the public's mind if not for people like you that were either the executives at the record companies that created the saleable, marketable material or the people that actually promoted it through your promotions. Um, you know, it, everything is kind of intertwined. So as I look at this series and I look at your role in how it pertains to a heartbeat, You've just touched upon something. There were songs that you were instrumental in. You orchestrated either the development of them or the promotion of them. Those songs had lives of their own in many ways. They had heartbeats. I think we like to call them classics. Mm -hmm. um, there were also clubs that had heartbeats in and of themselves just by the virtue of what they are and other ones that have other uh, side components. So when we talk about a place like the garage, you know, that could be a place that has multiple heartbeats. It has the heartbeat for what it is as a club, for what it represented, for the music. And then again, maybe there's a story that of your own personal heartbeat as it might pertain to a record that you are promoting or an artist that you worked with that did a show there or something like that. So you see how I kind of fracture this concept a little right. bit? Right, exactly. And, and the heartbeat is an orchestration of the various architects who make this whole uh, disco dance music genre become a reality. You had disco radio and Frankie Crocker BLS. You had the clubs, the club owners, you know, people like Michael Fesco of Flamingo and uh, uh, Tony and Allen of 12 West and the DJs, Jim Burgess, your famous Roy Thode, who was, you know, talk about the heartbeat of Fire Island and the, and the Ice Palace. Mm. So it, it was a coming together of all these different dynamics and elements uh, that have that have come to pass, and uh, it was such a, an exciting period, you know, when you had a guy like David Mancuso, who made the first private club a real entity in New York, and he could program music like nobody else. Nikki Ciano, and then there was a place called the Firehouse. I don't know if you heard about that. No, that was, I think that might have been before my time. Now. That was one of the first early. Uh, uh, gay clubs. It was literally an old firehouse down there near Houston Street, and it was packed. Unbelievable. These were the early beginnings. And then you had clubs like the Sanctuary with Francisco Grasso and and uh, Walter Gibbons. Uh, these are all the architects that even started way before Larry. Uh, the scene was really beginning to happen. Yes, on Fire Island. I mean, you know. Uh, the pavilion and 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 Cherry Grove was pumping. Uh, Tom Moulton was like spinning 45s even before it became more formal and what have you. Uh, so uh, it was in a very exciting period during that time uh, in terms of. 
the clubs, the DJs, the, the music, the radio stations, the club owners. Uh, so you want to talk about a heartbeat. That, that, that's a real big uh, scenario of what made this a very viable industry at the time, don't you think? I do, and I'm hoping that it gives me fodder for many interesting episodes as I explore all the multiple facets. And too much to your point, I do have venue owners that are that are scheduled for interviews. I have, as yourself, a promoter. Other uh, other promoters I've interviewed, producers, artists that are on the spectrum. Um, you know, I do want to bring as many different viewpoints into this because, as an arts and entertainment professional, I found that collaboration gives the greatest, the greatest product in the end. And and whether it's a theater production or a concert or 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 a dance show or a special event or a party, or you know even in your case, packaging an album, mixing an album, sure. going into a studio and recording and putting it together, it's the collaborative efforts. That, well, that, you know what can what can I say, Marsha? How fortunate was I? Uh, during that time period, because back then, you know, you had Vince Aletti, who was one of the first journalists to talk about disco in, in Rolling Stone magazine, talking about how the, the scene was really starting to happen big time. And and, and uh, there's Vince. Speaking. There's Vince, a little modern-day picture of right. you and Vince. But yeah. you need Vince, oh, my God, and what a great book he has written as well. Right. Uh where he gives all the data of all the playlists of all the DJs through the years. Unbelievable. Mm -hmm. uh, and Vince was one of the first journalists to, in a sense, give credibility to the scene. Uh, and, and, and Vince wound up, when I went to Warner Brothers and my own label, which we talk about in a minute, he, I, I hired him to be my vice president of A&R. Yes. And, and he was an excellent uh, executive to the team. And, and whatever. Uh, Vince had a funny joke. He said, listen, I made money as a journalist, but I didn't really make money until I went to RFC Warner Brothers. So, <laughs> so he, he really appreciated uh, taking it to the next level and what have you. And listen, I mean, what can I say? Uh, I was at the right place at the right time being in New York. You know, Fire Island was bubbling and all these clubs that I've articulated were bubbling. And, and you know, uh, the, the records were just breaking without radio airplay. Uh, the scene was just... Uh, it was gate. an amazingly prolific time all across every spectrum of the arts because in those, I mean, the late 70s, early 80s, pre-AIDS, you could just pick a different genre every night and find something in the city that would satisfy you. It was amazing. And there was also incredible overlap, I found. Oh, yeah, Definitely. It was yeah, wonderful. Was, it really was wonderful. I mean, uh, whatever scene you liked or that you were into, I mean, uh, it was there. And not only just in the New York level, but on the national level. John Luongo had a record pool up in Boston. He started doing mixes. Miami was very, uh, vi really bustling, even yes, though T you had T Bo. Yeah, Bo, Bo, Bo Crane. Right? There was another one in Miami. I forgot. Right. So we had record pools, uh, Flamingo Record Pool. And the Florida record pool. Yes. Uh, yes. And Bill and Kelly all over was major down there. Markets, major markets. Uh, and, and you're right. It was it was a movement that created an industry, I think. Exactly. And, uh, I mean, that's, I guess, uh, what led to the development of, the, you know, the story of 
me going to Warner Brothers. It's, it's, it's a quick little story. I was working for TK, uh, and we were doing very well, obviously, with all the artists at TK. I signed Voyage and Boris Midney to the roster, and we had uh, T Connection, George McRae, KC, Betty Wright, Jimmy Bohorn, uh, Foxy. The list was endless. And at one point in time, I think uh, Mo Austin, who's the chairman of the board of Warner Brothers, I guess he was kind of entertaining wanting to get into the dance music field and what have you. Uh, and he called Henry, who he knew, because uh, before TK was a, a record company, it also was a distribution company. It was called Tone Distributors. Yes. And back at, back in the day, uh, they distributed Warner Brothers Records. So they, he knew Mo Austin. Look, Henry is, was the founder of TK. He signed, uh, uh, a lot of people don't know, Ray Charles and James Brown. And he's been around. He's a, one of the big architects of not only dance music, but R&B. And he knew Mo Austin, the chairman of Warner Brothers. And uh, Mo called Henry one day and said, hey, if you don't mind, I have a special project I need help on. Uh, it's a female model out of France. Her name is Madeline Kane. Would you mind, Henry, if I could borrow Ray to work as a consultant uh, to help me with this project? Henry said, yeah, go ahead. Use Ray. No problem. Well, you want to know something, Marsha? You shouldn't have done that. He shouldn't have done that. I, <laughs> <laughs> I mean... Here, well, here I, I know, but Henry Henry was that kind of a guy, though. So, do you remember when you loaned me Madeline Kane to do a special promotion with her uh, singing live at Sahara? Yes. Oh my God. I'm sorry, <laughs> I don't have that graphic with me. I have still have my advertisement, but it's in Florida, so I'll have to add it to our Facebook pages when I get back to Florida. Okay. But indeed, I still have that invite. <laughs> and, and and as it turned out, I worked that what project. What a wonderful record she was. Yeah. Oh my gosh, hang on, I've got a picture of Madeline to throw there up. There she is. Uh, beautiful, beautiful woman. Great voice. Great record. Still to this day, I hear it. Yeah, Rough, Rough Diamond was a Jim Burgess remix and Forbidden uh, Love. And, uh, yeah, you know, when I took on this project as a, you know, for, for Warner Brothers, working as a consultant, while I'm an employee of TK, that's kind of unusual, the record did go to number one. And that, I had just won Promotion Man of the Year at the disco conventions four years in a row. Is so, that when this picture was from? I couldn't yes, get a year yes, on it. Yep. That's about, Beautiful. I would say that's probably 79. Seven, that was that was going to be my guess. Now, this one looks to be also around the same era. Well, that's a little later because that's when I'm with Warner Brothers. That's when, that's, so that's after 80. I'm sorry. I didn't read right. the headline very well. Right. Never mind. Uh, Here we go back to Donna. Yeah. And that was at the Billboard Disco Convention, which were big. You, you went to those conventions, Marshall? I certainly did. I went to that one and uh, a couple before. In fact, a very odd cross-reference I had years later in my lighting career through the guys that headed up a lighting company in Austin called High End Systems. Right. They had an AV company back in the mid-late 70s. And that AV company supplied all the audiovisual gear for that awards presentation. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> we were just kind of sharing stories over beers one year. And it kind of came out that we were in the same place at the same time in the 70s. Yeah. Doing different things. I had not yet begun my lighting career. I was still, at that time, 79, I was working with Joe Long and the Joe Long Sound. Right. Another 
another thank you to you because it is through you that I met Bob Small and right. Joe Long and began working with Joe on his Midnight Rhythm projects and then the Joe Long Which Star wound up project, on Atlant Atlantic Records. Uh, which was on Atlantic Records, exactly. Uh, you know, and that kind of brought my dream of eh, maybe not being a songwriter yet, but certainly working in music as a producer that, you know, let me taste the reality of that. It was a, a dream come true for a young, barely 25 year old kid. I'll tell you what, it was pretty amazing. I'm going to jump back just a minute in your history here because we talked a lot about TK and TK had wonderful records. And I just want to share with our audience. Um, one of the ones that again, here's, uh, a huge dance hit again to this day, Peter Brown, Dance With Me. Um, one of my first publicity assignments, a huge hit for TK Records. Very also, big. It was a big record. It was a club hit, an R&B hit, and a pop hit. And Betty Wright worked that record with her with, and, with Peter. And I remember our publicity hit was that Peter Brown recorded it in his bedroom on a four-track tape recording. Right, exactly. <laughs> that was, uh, I think I still have the press release and, somewhere. And, and, and I don't know if you remember, but uh, 60 Minutes did a story on disco. Yes, they, they, indeed. Uh, they featured and, it. And they featured uh, this record and Peter Brown uh, in the studio with Betty Wright singing. And they were, they were showing how you orchestrate the, the various elements of putting a so-called disco record together. Indeed, I do remember that. I absolutely do remember that interview. Another huge uh, dance music uh, records came out of T-Connection, another great TK artist. Right. Do, yeah, this is at midnight, and they had the previous hit, Do What You Want to Do. Yep, Pe yep. People, also, uh, also a radio hit, as I recall, Do What You right. Want to Do. There was a, ma a major record. Major it, it, records. And I don't yeah. know if this one never made a commercial or it was just more of a disco record. And I'm sorry, the A in the beginning, half of the M is cut off on the left. Amont, Amont is the group. Right. And was this also a Jim Burgess uh, mix, or do yes, I it, yes, it was. Them? Yes, it was. Okay. And the producer was a guy named Ray Martinez. Yes. And yes. Uh, he also uh, did uh, Foxy with a big crossover hit called Get Off. Yes. That was, that was huge. And uh, uh, this was this was a big club record, and it was a big disco radio record. But yes. it wasn't it wasn't a pop record per se. No, but it was it was a huge club record, and you know it was, I I it was a very up record. It was a record that you always had arms in the air on the dance floor. It, it was in the a very happy crowd. It was in the same genre of Love and Kisses and Don Ray and exactly. Sarone, and that's the reason why I signed Voyage to TK because I wanted TK, which was known to be kind of a funky label out of Miami. I wanted to compete with the so-called Casablanca Euro disco sound and Voyage with Sylvania was just huge. Now was, I will never forget one day being in my office at Howard Bloom, a floor below you and all this hubbub and commotion. And we were all ordered upstairs. I think Bob gathered us together and we all had to go to your office and you were so excited to play for us your latest discovery which was Boris Midney, USA, European oh, Connection, boy. beautiful. And it, you know, come into my heart and we were dancing up a storm. Bob Small was there. He's like, come on upstairs, y'all. You guys got to hear this. You yeah. guys got to hear this. And me and Mark Bigo, Barbara Shelley and every, you know, your brother, Bob, we all ran up. We had a little dance party in your office listening to this new group you had just signed which yeah. was the producer, Boris. And it, and it wasn't the atypical sound for TK, you know? 
it uh, was very atypical for TK. It was a lot more in line with that lush orchestration. Exactly. A brilliant, brilliant producer. In fact, if my memory serves me, didn't he kind of introduce that 48 track recording studio into he, New York at the end he, of the seventies? He did. He did. 48 track. I mean, this guy, uh, he, he, I mean, he, he made a sound, a record, the big production sound, lush production just unbelievable and then not only that record uh then we did a follow-up and the album was called beautiful ben beautiful ben which was even lusher in some ways it was even lusher right right and it was a huge number one uh club hit uh and then when i went to uh, warner brothers i gave boris a, a deal and he put out an album on rfc warner uh the album was called caress and it did very well in the clubs now, uh, so, another uh, producer that you've worked with who, again, had they, the producers have projects by names, but this one producer, Greg Diamond, had wow. a very successful project, Bionic Boogie, which was on Polydor, but I know you were involved in this one as well. Right. It was Classic. one of the independent projects I worked before I formally joined TK. So there were three projects I worked, the Savannah Band, uh, Vicky Sue Robinson, and this one, uh, Risky Changes was the hit. And the, the hidden fact around this is that Luther Vandross was on this album. He also had a great record uh, that was mixed by Jim Burgess, Hot Butterfly, and it was huge. And yes. the thing is, is that Luther was on this album and this album did well, but it, Luther really didn't get the, 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 the real shine, so to speak, that the Change album got when he did the Change album with Searching Glow of Love and, and Lover's Holiday. And well, there that you was, are. That was, correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't that one of your first releases on RFC? In fact, it was. It was, it the, was. It was okay. the first signing, and it uh, went gold. And, and you're right. This is the first time I think that Luther was recognized as a front man. It was prior to his career as a single artist, and prior right. to that, he did a lot of background vocals for us at Joe Long Sound. Right. He, he, he's right. on the Gershwin. He's on Hallelujah 2000, along with many notable background musicians and and singers um but yeah that was kind of where luther and and valerie simpson to a degree that kind of made their bread and butter doing right. background and yeah, he was on uh, david bowie's young americans yes and, and what have you and he was on yes he was on the bionic boogie album even though they were it was bionic boogie album was a huge hit he didn't seem to get the pu publicity uh or the artist development image behind it the way changed it and Yes, after he did the Change album and the Glow of Love, which was a major hit, uh, there were three hits on the Change album: yeah. uh, Glow of Love, Searching, and Lover's Holiday. And still that, to this day, I hear them on the radio. Unbelievable! And yeah, uh, yeah. that well, that's I dare him. say you gave him his career as a solo artist. And he recognizes that, and and I appreciate that. Unfortunately, he passed away. Yeah, and yes, it, another sad soul lost. Uh, yeah, and this artwork. Well, is Greg Porto's artwork. A lot of people yes. love Greg. He's passed away, and he did this artwork. He and not did only all of these four, no, unbelievable. unbelievable. What a sweet, yeah, another dear, another dear friend gone way too early, way too soon. And um, uh, very, very talented. Him. And I believe also I have two more pieces of Greg's art to show the top two oh, wow. from the Gino Socio first two albums that Greg also did. And right. he's also were albums that were on your RFC label. And you know what's interesting, Marsha? These are not your atypical disco-looking covers, if you will. 
you know they, 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 it was more of an abstract look and 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 it just brought i think it did, as opposed to just you know disco lights and all this glatter, glitter he as he, he came in more of an artsy look uh that i think like the change your album cover i, I mean that's so futuristic it's well just, it launched a new sound it launched a new label and it launched a new look so all in all greg did i think exactly what one would have wanted for the moment you were right. creating a new endeavor and what a sweet man i i think of greg often yeah robbie leslie loves his artwork he uh keeps sending me stuff and posting stuff about robbie about uh greg's artwork nice uh, Apparently, Robbie was a big fan of, uh, of Greg's uh, artwork. Uh, and uh, then the Geno Socio signing after Change, uh, Dancer, that was, uh, that was, oh, yeah. The same, it's probably around the same time that you signed him. Yeah, this is probably at the Studio 54 party, the launching of RFC. Uh, Warner okay. Brothers threw, threw a party, and uh, Geno needless to show up. Diana Ross showed up. Yeah, Evelyn I Champagne remember that party. Evelyn yeah, it was a it was a great party, and uh, uh, Dancer was number one on the Billboard uh, Dance Disco charts for eight weeks. Unbelievable! It's fabulous. You know, you know fabulous. And, and then when I moved to Atlantic a couple of years later, he had, I took Gino and Change with me, and Change had a big record with Paradise, and Gino had a big record with Try It Out. So this was they, let's see back here. Paradise was this the bottom right on Change? uh i think it might be if I i'm not no 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 it's 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 the top the top right top right i'm sorry yes that was the last one and gino was i'm trying to think if it was either bottom left or bottom right it was the it was the bottom left bottom left okay there you go scratching the recesses of my mind here ray <laughs> you know it was a, it was a perfect storm getting this deal with with warner brothers uh, at, at the time and it was a three-year deal it gave me a complete autonomy to sign artists as well as not only being the head of rfc records but head of the warner brothers dance music department and we had a great cavalcade of hits with ashford and simpson uh found a cure b-52s rock lobster we took the concept of disco to dance music and and integrated uh what we call dance oriented rock and not only that, Devo had a big record with Whippet. Yes, uh, yes, uh, yes. We, all, we had Chaka Khan with. I was uh, say, didn't you have something to do with one of the Talking Heads, Once in a Lifetime? Yes, and so that these and Roy Larry loved that record. I could imagine, and Larry Levan loved that record. He also loved the the Clash. You know, there was one thing, both Roy and Larry stepped outside the box of what you would call, quote, disco music, and they had no compunction to throw in some rock and roll because they felt like it, or the mood struck them, or throw in something that was just like wackadoodle out of left field, but it worked. It worked yeah. amazingly well, and, you know, God Larry bless would, them, God rest both of their souls. Larry would play Rock the Casbah, like... Over and over again, unbelievable. Yeah, he loved he loved the Clash, and uh, you know, uh, of all the clubs that we're talking about here, don't you think that the Paradise Garage sits at the top of the heap of being one of the most iconic clubs? That Absolutely. Yeah, without, I think without, I think so. Uh, without a doubt, and in no small part because it was Larry's house, and Larry had the autonomy 
to create this environment and that environment was so welcomed by everyone. Um, he created this, the, I mean, the heartbeat of the garage was very unique. I won't say it was the only heartbeat in town. Um, right. the heartbeat of the ice palace on fire Island was very unique and it was very different than the one in the city, though they both did have, you know, Jimmy Mary clubs also had a certain je ne sais quoi about them, if you will. Right. Um, and, and many, many other clubs. I mean, I remember going to buttermilk bottoms in the city, a whole different feel, but again, you had a different, a different group, but for iconic clubs, clubs that really changed music and the music industry garage, definitely at the top of the game. Well, let, me, think, let me, let me tell you that, that, that particular club and Larry, literally, I would take Frankie Crocker there on a Friday night or a Saturday night. I'd bring some test pressings with me. For example, one night I bought uh, Gino Socio's dancer and I got, you know, I had a relationship with with Larry that he trusts me when I tell him about the record he played it for the crowd or what have you and it was unbelievable at that club WBLS was being programmed by Larry LeVan people don't know that necessarily so he played dancer on a Friday night Marsha dancer was on WBLS that Monday next Monday morning in rotation yep, yep. Unbe unbelievable yep. and the garage became so popular that in England they have a club called the Ministry of Sound, and that it's 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 really a replica of the garage. I have, I've I've never been to it. I heard it was very much fab formulated after garage, and you know, in no small part, at least my personal feeling is, if it wasn't for the garage and what was created there, and prior to that at the gallery. Right. I don't know if house music and Frankie Knuckles would have created house music in much the same way he did when he went to Chicago. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, that, that's that a whole the that's a whole other. Yeah, that's a Marsha. That becomes a little bit of a controversial subject. As well, to where, maybe, how, but I'm how, looking chronologically. If you look at it chronologically and nowhere else, Frankie yeah. was in New York before he was in Chicago. That's true, but you had a guy named Ron Hardy. Who uh, was was a big DJ in in, in Chicago, and uh, you know what, what can I say? In the eighties, the, the the garage did help carry on the new genre of house music uh, that, that came forward. But the only difference with house music, it didn't cross over to the radio the way some of these records that I've just articulated cross over to the radio, uh, okay. like a Gloria Gaynor, a Used Corporation, uh, a Soul Makusa, the Tramps. Or uh, Doctors Bizarre Savannah Band. Here's a picture. Yeah, that, of that and, album went platinum. so lovely, Corey Day. Oh, what a dream. House music was more of a tribal sound. It didn't, it didn't, it didn't have the lyrical strength that some of these records were talking about. Listen, I'm old-fashioned, even with our current relaunch of the RSC Fresh label, I'm doing more R&B right now because there is no real club scene right now. Can, can you, where is it? It doesn't really exist anymore, to the best of my knowledge, except various uh, clubs that from time to time they'll throw parties or whatever. But we don't have the network that we used to have back in the day. Would, would you agree? Agreed. I yeah. would totally agree. I mean, I remember uh, learning from people like you, the best in the biz, how to promote. When I when it was my turn to be a record promoter, that's what I did. The same thing that you did. You spent every night in the club. You went to multiple clubs a night. You spent time in the booth. You got to know the DJs. They used to come to my apartment when I worked for Ariola to get records. You right. 
personal relationships with everyone. There were some records you had that you knew this DJ would go wackadoo for. And another one, maybe not quite so much, but maybe they liked the B-side. Right. Um, it was much more personal. And, and I remember, uh, you know, seeing so much interaction. I'm a little removed from that world these days myself. I don't know if the DJs have the kind of sharing and interaction that they did back then. They were a group of guys that were out to get the best music for their audience. And when they found a wonderful record, they wanted to share it with other DJs. It wasn't oh, no. unbelievable. Yeah. Who was a to could be king of the mountain. It was how many can I share this with so that everybody enjoys this fabulous record. And I think in no small part, that was how we got huge record sales without radio play as well. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and, and, and the DJs of yesteryear who are still around, uh, whatever, they're getting most of their work in Europe. David Morales lives in Indeed. Italy. You know? And here's a couple of yesteryear folk that are still with us on the left. Oh, yeah. Bean, who is still very prolific, has his own show on Sirius XM Studio 54 Radio. And on right. the right, right of you is John Luongo, uh, right. who is incredibly prolific still as a producer and uh, uh, companies and management. And, you know, um, it, I mean, it, you know, John Luongo, you know, his name is on so many records. It's ridiculous. Unbelievable. You know? Unbelievable. Yeah. Although you, you were running a close second to him. I'm going to throw up a quick amalgam. We mentioned very briefly Jim Burgess. Oh, this yeah. This is a compilation of many of the remixes that our dear friend Jim Burgess did. And many of these you promoted as well. Exactly, exactly. And there's Change right there in the middle with Lover's Holiday. And... Uh, uh, Venus Dotson, not writer. That was a big record. Uh, you said, uh, were you around? Uh, were you in the studio with Linda Clifford and Runaway Love? I was Love, in the studio when Jim mixed Linda Clifford and also when he mixed Rod Stewart. Do you think I'm sexy? And we were was, good friends and we hung out a lot. You realize Jim, I mean, the records that he uh, did, I used two mixers for the most part, with some exceptions. I used Richie Rivera for a couple of things. I used T. Scott for a couple of things who worked at Better Days. But Jim Burgess and Larry LeVan were my main two mixers. And Jim, yeah. did you, do you do it? You know, the resentment uh, from the rock and roll department of Warner Brothers, they weren't happy that we made a disco record out of Do You Think I'm Sexy? It sold three million singles. Yeah, they weren't happy until they looked at the receipts. Right, exactly. And, uh, <laughs> when, and, when accounting got hold of it, they said, yo, wait a minute, you guys. This is a good thing. <laughs> Jim was an incredible mixer. And, you know, he was op he was classically trained. He was Jim opera. was brilliant. Jim and I used to sing opera arias. I mean, Jim was, God rest his soul too, another one gone too yeah. long. Absolutely brilliant. And he had a classical music background. Whereas yeah. not every DJ had a proper music education or a musical background. They were just good at what they did. Some just had that, that innate God-given talent to be pitch perfect and, and meter perfect. Yeah, Jim was all Jim was all of that and classically trained. Yeah, and an and, opera singer. Yeah, and 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 he, uh, you know, you, I can see why he would like a Boris Midney uh, type record. You know what I mean? Oh my God, yeah. That, you know that that it was so big. He did that. I see here he he remixed on Warner Brothers a good project, Love Deluxe. Uh, here comes that sound, yes. of which Greg Porter did a cover on that particular one. So you know, there's so many titles, so much music. It's there's. It's it's been an incredible ride, if if you will. It's so it's so sad that we see that people who we know uh, are, are no longer with us. We just recently lost Tony Smith, 
it's is so a- so sad and it just makes me say that it is first how grateful i am to have known and had relationships with so many fantastic people and how right. important it is to reach out to say hello, to pick up a phone, not just in our digital world and do likes on Facebook, but actually go call your friend that maybe you haven't spoken to in 30 years, but gave you something once way, way, way long ago that made you smile. Um, You know, it's so important to do that because so often we're just too late. I mean, my goodness, last week, we just lost Frank Core, another right. wonderful DJ from back in the day. Yeah. Uh, you never know. You never know. Um, Every day, we're, I mean, we're up there in age and we're looking at people. Uh, someone just passed away. People may not know the name from the dance music world, but he was one of the biggest R&B independent promotion people who worked for about five different labels. Ruben Rodriguez passed away. Oh. Uh, passed away last week no uh, so kidding. Oh, yeah what a shame yes and, uh, i remember Ruben. and so it's it's we're in an era you know we're looking we're, we're talking about here marcia we're here sitting here articulating the evolution of dance music and the, and whatever i will say unequivocally that even though i'm putting out more r&b records right now because first of all that was the foundation of dance music anyway you know motown and philly international and what have you uh, we lived in a period of these records and of these sounds. I don't know if it will ever be captivated. It captivated a market and a consumer. I don't know if we can ever get that feeling back again. I just, I, I don't want to sound like sour grapes, but you know, we, we still have house music. EDM is for the, the festivals and what have you. I mean, I'm still old fashioned. I like a song, whether it's an R&B I do song. too. A beginning, exactly. a middle, and an end. I exactly. Like, I like and- the story. But you know, Ray, I like to think that as we move forward, as we progress musically, as we progress as a society, that the heartbeat will evolve to maybe a new heartbeat for the newer generation. Because let's face it, our parents kind of looked down their noses at us and what we thought were our heartbeats because it wasn't theirs. So I'm saying maybe like that age thing is creeping up and because we don't understand it doesn't mean that it's not there. And I think a very important part of what I want to bring to this podcast are other perspectives. I do want to get some younger generations in here. I do want to get some people in here that can give me a story of what's going on for them in their world. And I also want to preserve the legacy of what we helped create back then because it was so important. And without knowing where you've come from, you're never going to know really how to get to where you're going. Right. I, 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 and I appreciate that uh, narrative. Uh, you know, when I think of some of the records I've been, you know, involved with or what have you, uh, you know, when I think of Change and the Glow of Love or, or the Savannah Band or, or Chaka Khan or Ashford and Simpson. And I just think about these records. And you know what? They're timeless. They you know, are. they're, they're they classics. Are. I have a group And they're on. as timeless as, as Beethoven's Ninth. I mean, no, yeah, no kidding. that is a classic origin. It doesn't matter what it is. It could be a, a Tiffany necklace. Um, uh, it, it, it doesn't matter if it is classic, if it is worthy, it will linger. And that does tend to evolve and change through time. But what a wonderful legacy that you can rest your laurels on, that you've given us to listen and dance to for low these many years. And again, I say thank you personally for being such a tremendously positive influence in my career and in my life. 
Well, I appreciate that, Marsha. And now in present time, we relaunched the RFC label. Uh, uh, tell us about, a little bit about your latest uh, artists. I just put a graphic up of your yeah. latest three releases. Please yeah, do these, tell us about These are th uh, three releases that we put out in the last 90 days. They're doing exceptionally well in the UK. And that's where we break a lot of our records now. I use the UK uh, sole internet stations as my as my foundation to break records and what have you because they is still the UK not the hot R and B locale in the world these days. I mean they've really taken over rulership that, of R and B. That is true, and they have internet stations that play uh, the music and help break artists. And so there's Peter Wayne. Uh, this is his third release with us. I got what you need. Sons of Funk is a new group uh, that they're, they're kind of doing a. Uh, funky R&B up-tempo song, and Taiwan, who's a prolific songwriter, Love on the Dance Floor. All these three records are making noise in the UK and starting to break through in the US. And uh, it's, it, you know, prior to that, when we relaunched the RFC Fresh label, we started with, uh, did a collaboration with Lenny Fontana. Uh, Manny knows about that. Is you work with uh, Lenny, and we did a D Train record, uh, Raise Your Hands, and it was I very. I thought you had an overlap with Lenny and D Train. Yeah. Um, I was very. Lenny was actually my first guest on this podcast, right? And I was very happily a guest on his True House Stories with Robbie. There you go. Uh, and uh, we then also uh, did Melissa Morgan, who uh, has been around in the R and B world, very successful. We yeah. had, we did we did a ballad with uh, Christopher Williams. Who's had a lot of uh, R&B hits and what what have you, and uh, so the journey continues. What can I say? Uh, maybe I'm God not doing. God bless my friend, and keep it going. Keep it going strong. Um, you know, one foot in front of the other, and 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 as long as you continue to have this joyful tenor to your voice and a lift in your step, and I know you're doing this from the heart. You can't go wrong, Ray. Everything well, look, it's all full from passion. If people uh, who want to go back and reflect on uh, the various songs and history and some of the photos that you've shown here, I have a group on Facebook called The History of uh, Dance Music, uh, hosted by RFC. Take a look at it. It has over 13,000 members. A lot of people post a lot of iconic past records there and photos and what have you. Uh, feel free to join and uh, take a look at that. It'll, it'll take you on a, a little golden ride of the history of dance music. It, it, there is one picture here that I'm going to show that will close us out because it just kind of says it in a nutshell. Here's Grace Jones oh. <laughs> tasting your ear from Lord only knows. But, yeah. you know, that, you know not for nothing. That's what our world is filled of. Magical, fabulous moments like that. Those right. moments create multiple heartbeats. Those heartbeats create a wonderful, wonderful life. Ray, I can't thank you enough for being my guest here today. We've got your runner going on the bottom of our of our YouTube broadcast. Please make sure that you find Ray on Facebook at Ray Caviano, or as he said, as his group, History of Dance Music, also on Facebook. Check out all the new releases on RFC Record, RFC Fresh Records, Ray's new label. And uh, Raymond, from my first day, Un until today and beyond, thank you so much. You have meant so much to me in my career, and it means so much to me to have you share your stories about our heartbeat. My pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Uh, you are one of the instrumental figures in my revolutionary, evolutionary days of dance music.
Well, thank you, Ray. I wear that as a true badge of pride. There you go. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. And we'll see you on our next broadcast of the Heartbeat of the Dance Floor. Goodbye now and stay well. <laughs>